And uh, I will hopefully hear, get to talk to you all at some future time. Crazy. I'm crazy for feeling so lonely. Ozone House is the only agency in Washtenaw County providing free services to lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered, and questioning youth. If you need a safe and supportive space to deal with challenges presented by community, peers, or family, call Ozone House at 734-662-2222, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Ozone House offers free counseling, a weekly support group, and a weekly art and social group for LGBTQ youth. Call 734-662-2222. Ozone House. There is a safe place. afternoon. Ann Arbor, you're listening to The Living Writers Show. My name is T. Hetzel, and today I'm happy to be sitting in the studio with poet Dan Gerber. Dan, welcome to the welcome to Ann Arbor and The Living Writers Show. Thank you. Always, always happy to be in Ann Arbor. And you've, you've been, because you, you were telling me that you were, you've actually, you've been in Ann Arbor a few times, and you've actually been on this, this radio show, Oh, well, I, I, you know, I think it was a, a different show, and it might have been a, a different station, uh, <laughs> but it was at the university, uh, you know, uh, a long time ago. Because you, you actually—that's the first thing you said—the the labyrinth of the corridors to get to yes. the the radio station. Right. So I feel it must have been this one. Maybe there's more than one labyrinth, and uh, it could be. Could be. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, uh, well, usually before I get too far away from it. Um, Dan, I'm just going to read your your bio that that's printed in your latest book, A Primer on Parallel Lives, uh, just out this year, 2007, from Copper Canyon Press. Um, and then you can add to it, or or like feel free to jump in if, right. as I'm reading <clears throat> it. <laughs> um, Dan Gerber has published six previous collections of poetry, three novels, a book of short stories, and two books of nonfiction. His Trying to Catch the Horses received Forward Magazine's Gold Medal Book of the Year Award in Poetry. Gerber's work has appeared in The New Yorker, Poetry, The Georgia Review, and Best American Poetry. With his wife Debbie, and with numerous animals, he lives in the Santa Inez Valley of Central California. You got that right. That's a, a lot of people stumble on the Y N E Z. Yeah, it's yeah. it's beautiful when you get it. What are some of the mispronunciations you've? Yinez or, oh. <laughs> you know, but it's like Inez. Actually, sometimes I see it spelled with an I instead of a Y. Oh, okay, and that that would be. A, it is on the old mission there from the 15th century, but. Uh, oh, is that near? Um, is that near Santa Maria at all, or it's maybe? Sol- my... It's uh, 
about 30 minutes south of Santa Maria and just over the mountains north of Santa Barbara. Oh, yeah, I think I might have actually driven past that old mission at some point. Do you go there ever, Dan? Is it sort of a touchstone place? Well, it's, a, it's a beautiful it? old mission. I, I actually uh, do go there once in a while and just uh, sit and take it in. Well, um, well, did I leave out any, like, what, well, tell us about a little bit, well, did I leave out anything of your biography? That's, <laughs> yeah, that's like four sentences. Um, well, um, let's, let's see. Well, um, you're reading, you're reading at Shaman Drum. You've come to Ann Arbor to read at Shaman Drum. And you also, this is not your first time reading at Shaman Drum either. No, I, I think it was about eight years ago when my, uh, uh, previous collection, Trying to Catch the Horses, came out uh, in 1999, I think it was. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, so not too long ago, but you're due back. So we're lucky to have you in happy town. Happy to be back and happy to spend time in that bookstore. Of course, it's a little dangerous, you know, for my credit card when I do, but... Uh, it's such a great yeah, shop, isn't it? Is. it? And independent, and yeah, we have to... Um, Yes. Well, um, well, I'm so happy you're here with us. And, and you've been so for this, you've been actually on tour for a while now, because last night, well, I should say, this is a pre-recorded show. Yeah. So when everyone's listening to it today, we Dan's sitting in the studio for our time. It's September 27th. When you hear this, it will be about last week. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and, and so so you were just in you read in Detroit last night. Where, yeah. where did you read there, Dan? Oh, it was uh, for the Detroit Metro Arts. Uh, uh, M.L. Uh, Liebler's uh, uh, read uh, with the Magic Poetry Band and uh, and uh, Thomas Lux and uh, uh, at a, uh, a gallery in Southfield. Ooh, the Magic Poetry Band. That sounds that sounds interesting. Well, <laughs> it, it is. I hadn't. I didn't know what I was going to experience, but it's a very uh, very nice jazz quartet, uh, uh, and uh, to which uh, M.L. and uh, several of the musicians uh, voice over uh, poems. Oh, you know, I'm glad that I I asked then because I think I was picturing something along the line of kazoo's or no, or, <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, fine sax player and uh, guitar, bass and drums. And, wow, uh, ah, the the beat poetry sort of sort of resurgence. like that exactly. Yeah. Well, leave it to Detroit. That Detroit is a is a poetic city, uh, I think. Right with broad broad. Broad Street Press, I think. Yes. Broad, they, so history there, uh, right. uh, and uh, printing broadsides, much like Copper Canyon. Yeah. Y- your your press out in Port Townsend, Washington. Yes, and uh, yeah, Copper Canyon did a, a beautiful broadside of one of the poems in the in the collection. Oh, which one? Dan? Uh, six six kinds of gratitude. Oh, will that be one? Because you're going to read for us today. Is that well, one of the ones? I'd be you're... happy to read. Oh, okay. Uh, anything you like, but certainly that one. <laughs> sure. That sounds that sounds great. Um, we, before we came on the air, um, Dan and I were chatting, and um, could you tell us about the the moment that you you knew that you had sort of arrived as <laughs> as a poet? Well, I, I, it was I was being a little jocular about it, but uh, um, we were doing a a. Uh, a, a program uh, for Copper Canyon for some of their donors and potential donors. Uh, and uh, somebody asked the question when it was I thought I had arrived as a poet. And I said, well, when Copper Canyon took my book. And uh, actually, it is a thrill. It's, it is, uh, um, in my opinion, you know, the, the uh, 
premier publisher of poetry in the in the country and uh you know, poets like W.S. Merwin choose to be there because, say, with Knopf, um, it's adding tone to the list. And with Copper Canyon, he feels a sense of dedication and that uh, that they're in it for the long haul. Yes. And I think that don't they also guarantee then that if you're a poet with them, uh, that they'll make sure all your books are always in print? Um, I don't know that, but I I, I like the idea. You yeah. know I, that may that may have been in the contract, but I didn't read the fine oh. print, <laughs> or maybe it's just a, a gentleman's agreement. I'm not sure, but uh, that that would be any poet's dream, I think. Yes, yeah, and and beautiful books that they make. Because your book here, I wish sometimes I wish we could beam out a, a visual to everyone over the radio, and um, and there's a fox on the cover of this, a primer on parallel lives. There's you've got a fox story, right? Um, well. I had a um, uh, a fox adopted me about five years ago. Uh, I was sit- working at my desk, and I looked across the room and saw two adults and three kits sitting, looking at me through the glass uh, panel in the door. And uh, for about three months, this uh, female fox would follow me on my walks, sometimes sit in the trail in front of me, sometimes sit on the window ledge, come and bark outside the bedroom window about two o'clock in the morning almost every night. And uh, I I would talk to her and just say, who are you? I mean, it was uh, uncanny, uh, thrilling, uh, but uh, uncanny. And then I I went to... uh, visit Jim Harrison and to do some fishing after about three months. And when I came back, uh, the fox was gone. Oh, because you were gone for three months? Well, no, no, I was only gone for uh, 10 days or so. But after after my relationship with the fox had been three months. And then when I came back, but um, uh, oddly and quite thrillingly, uh, a couple of months ago, a woman uh, entered herself to me at the uh, post office and said that she and her partner were reading my new book and uh, she said we watch you on your walk with the dogs over the hill we live on the rim of the canyon just to the west of you and then she said uh, and did you know that there's a fox that follows you on your walk and I said no really she said yes they had uh, noticed this and they'd gotten the binoculars out and they said this fox followed me and when I stopped it lay down in the grass now Five years later, I don't know if it's the same fox or possibly one of her kits, but um, I had uh, I'd noticed over the years how often foxes have uh, appeared in my poems. And then uh, about three years ago, I ran into poet James Tate at a conference, and I hadn't uh, seen him in uh, maybe 30 years. And we were... Oh, wow. We were... Um, catching up and getting acquainted and he said you know when i when i think of you i you remember that night i was visiting you in michigan and we were sitting by the fire and we looked over and there was a fox watching us through the window and i had completely forgotten that so that is that is truly uncanny dan so there was um and so but then when when james tate mentioned it you you said oh, i, I you, remembered you it immediately remembered yeah it. yeah but i, I and what what so what year was that what, what, oh that was in the late 60s um and, uh, and were, did, were there any foxes before that sighting, or is that one of the, f- not, the first not ones? That that I, not that I recall. Until another conference when someone yeah. says, remember that fox, Dan? Right. But I, I, you know, but I, as I said, I have noticed how often, you know, foxes have, have uh, crept into my, into my poems, uh, not by 
not by intention, not that I had intended to write Fox poems, but <laughs> if I, I go through and look at it. Uh, so I guess if anybody asked the question, I, 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 I'd be pretty certain what my totem animal uh, yes. is. Yes, yes, your totem, that's exactly <laughs> it. And what do you think, well, so, so, so you must have given it some thought now, like what do you think the fox means to you? That, uh, um, I don't know. Oh, nice. I say you must. <laughs> she didn't answer surely. my questions, <laughs> but uh, there is definitely some connection there. That uh, uh, you know, I think in in Japanese mythology, foxes are often the visitation uh, of uh, uh, someone. You know, I don't want to get too um, too weird about this. No, no, but, no. Be weird. It's but, okay. Uh, this, it's radio. Uh, spirit visitation. <laughs> um, you know, I uh, uh, my I had lost a sister and also my first wife uh you know within a few years prior to that uh, time and um so you know i don't know i I, but but you know i mean it's 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 just interesting um it's interesting to speculate it's a question i can't answer but uh but i did write a poem about uh uh, about the fox, about this one, yes, uh, uh, which is called Revenant. Would you like me to read that? Oh, that would be that would be one. You know, why don't why don't we take a short break okay. and then we'll come back and that's what we'll we'll hear your poem, Good. Dan. Right. Um, uh, we'll be right back. Good afternoon, Ann Arbor. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The Living Writer Show. And my name is T. Hetzel. And today um, I've got Dan Gerber. Uh, poet Dan Gerber is in town uh, with his new book, A Primer on Parallel Lives. And if you're just joining us, uh, Dan is going to read us a poem uh, about uh, his uh, a, a very dear fox to him, a fox visitation. <laughs> this poem is called Revenant. Revenant is a, a uh, word that comes from the French, meaning one who returns or sort of a ghost. And actually, the title of my first collection of poems was called The Revenant. Revenant. When I looked up again, I could see the fox from my window, watching as she would every day on my walk from her cover of mullen and snakeweed, barking her curt raucous bark till I scanned the hillside and our eyes met, as if by some pact made back in the primordial when our trails first crossed, we had agreed on this still shrouded morning in June to question these two of our 10,000 lives. Oh, thank you. And um, 
and we you you have in your your wallet a photo of her of the fox. I do. I also carry photos of my grandchildren, but uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but the fox is definitely uh, there too. Yes, and so now and and Dan's agreed to to put her out. So we have her sort. She's here sort of looking looking over at us um lovely photo and this is the same photo dan that you mentioned that you had um that you had posted to ws merwin yes yeah in in a, in a correspondence i can't remember how it uh, came up something he mentioned in one of his letters and uh i sent him the uh the uh photo and he was uh, he wrote back he said he was thrilled to to have the the photograph and uh, put it on his altar uh, and uh, he is a, 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 a practitioner of Buddhism as uh, as am I and he has a little altar in his home and um, uh, <clears throat> so that wove its way into uh, into our correspondence and and how it's how long have you been corresponding with well Darwin? actually it was in 1990, uh, Jim Harrison and I shared a cabin with uh, Peter Matheson and uh, and uh, W. S. Merwin at a conference that Terry Tempest Williams had organized in Wyoming, and uh, I hadn't seen him in 16 years. Um, and he gave a reading at the uh, University of California at Santa Barbara, which I attended, and I wanted to speak to him afterwards, but there was a very long line, maybe 70 people or so, you know, to get books signed and to speak to him. And I had uh, animals at home that I had to take care of, uh, and I had been away for quite a while, so I asked a friend who was sitting with me if uh, if he would give my best to Merwin and explain, you know, and... Uh, my friend called later that night, and uh, he said that uh, uh, Merwin, uh, you know, w- waxed on uh, about my uh, work t- to him, and I, you know, I didn't even know he was was familiar with it, which was thrilling. Oh, and, Dan, uh, that is that's wow. And he said, uh, <laughs> and he left the message that said, "Next time, you know, bring the dogs with you." You know, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. They can wait. So anyway, in the car. I, I I wrote I wrote a, a letter to uh, to Merwin in Hawaii, you know, to say that I was sorry, you know, that uh, that I hadn't uh, uh, done that, and that sort of be, was the genesis of our uh, correspondence. And and that was um, just so I'm clear, because I maybe I'm just a bit foggy headed here today, Dan. But so this was so that he had. He had given the reading in Santa Barbara, um, yes. and that's um, and the, and but but you had. Um, you I had, live over the mountain in the next valley. But when had you been in the cabin in Wyoming? Oh, that was 1990. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, and and then the reading was in '99 or so. Uh, no, no, no. The reading was just a couple a couple of years ago. Oh, a couple. Of years so ago. actually, oh, okay. I've, I've only been corresponding with him uh, um, for uh, about. Uh, Two years now. Oh, okay. And yes. so then last summer, I, I was driving to uh, I was driving to to uh, Montana to uh, to go fishing, and uh, happened that Merwin was uh, uh, at a at a, uh, a conference in uh, Sun Valley, Idaho. So I segued over and spent the day with him, and it, that's actually the first time that. Uh, uh, I'd really sat and talked with him at any length, and the first time I'd seen him uh, since 1990. 
And, but but between those times, you you've had these lovely letters that you sent. Well, no, actually, the correspondence just started after the reading in Santa Barbara. So this was all within the last two years. And and okay, yeah. But but oh, then, I had had the correspondence. Pri- yes, by the time by, you saw through him the correspondence, in Idaho. we had arranged the meeting. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. But and it's it's almost um, that lost art actually, like of letters. It, it came up talking with Charlie D'Ambrosio. People don't really write letters right. well, anymore. Well, he, he he his his letter back began. Uh, you know, so happy to have your. Um, to have your good letter and written in your own fair hand and not on a gadget, uh, <laughs> as he put it. Uh, I use a, a pen. I, I do all of my first drafts longhand and uh, uh, and then use a, a word processor, kind of like a secretary, you know, okay. making corrections and do editing uh, on it. But uh, uh, I don't like the... Uh, you know the technology to get between me and the and the page and merwin told me very proudly that uh, he had neither uh, did not have and never had or will have uh, faxes or emails and uh, and i i i love letter writing it's becoming a, a lost art but so most of what we know about what went on inside of people and the generations before us come from reading their letters and people don't and, and take... the co- the correspondences between people, so you can see it over yes. a long t- long yeah. time. And a lot of people don't uh, don't save emails, and and I don't think we take the same care in writing emails that uh, you know that we did. And because again, in, you're more detached from it, aren't you? Because right. it's it's not in. You're the kind pens. of hurrying it out to get information over, and uh, and uh, so. It'll be changing the language as we know it, won't it? I guess there's some... I suppose it will. I mean, some of my favorite reading are reading collections of letters. And, uh, well, um, and so so you've actually then, um, is with these letters from Merwin, you've, you've had sort of a, like reading his, his longhand <laughs> is also had been sort of tricky at times. Yes. Yeah, I... I kidded about uh, you know it's like translating uh, his letters I, I would get them and I was thrilled I, to get the letter but it would take me several days or sometimes the better part of a week and what I would do is I would type out uh, the letter and leave blank the spaces that uh, words that I couldn't uh, decipher and then um, I'd put it away and maybe the next day I'd come back to it again and kind of like a puzzle the uh, uh uh, you know, the word would occur to me, and, uh, and finally I would send it to uh, an editor at uh, Copper Canyon Press who was familiar with Merwin's uh, hand. Deciphering some, some I, of the letters. Sometimes that I needed help with a, a couple of those blank spaces. <laughs> and then, um, and from that, you've you've you wrote a poem directly about that experience, I did. and then an essay, right, Dan? Well, so- I I wrote a. Um, I wrote a poem, uh, Merwin's uh, most recent book uh, called uh, Present Company, is a series of odes that are written in the second person in which he's addressing, uh, you know, a number of of objects and things and ideas. And uh, so this was kind of a takeoff on that. This poem was to W.S. Merwin. And then a a bit uh, later, I had a letter from uh, a man who was putting together an anthology, wanted to put together an anthology of poems with a little essay about it. So I wrote a little essay about the process of transcribing Merwin's letters. And uh, so these two things came together. Well, shall we, would you mind reading the poem? Certainly. To W.S. Merwin. 
I was struck this morning reading your ode to the blank spaces. How it reminded me of your recent letter I have been in the process of transcribing from your cryptic hand, typing it out but for the words I have yet to decipher from context. How the gaps fill in with patience, the way proud flesh bridges a cut or a small equation seems to solve, it, solve itself in the mind space of turning to the, to the quotidian. How pond water, for example, resettles itself in the image of this duck, fresh from who knows where. Um, would you like to read the essay now, All the right. companion? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> this is... Uh, this essay, I, as I said, I had written for this uh, anthology but uh, uh, about how this poem came into being. And it begins with a little quote from Wallace Stevens. And he said, it isn't every day that the world arranges itself in a poem. I was having a wonderful cor correspondence with W.S. Merwin, exchanging handwritten letters composed, as he put it, not on a gadget, which I also greatly prefer, although Merwin's hand can at times be difficult to decipher. Sometimes it would take long hours to get the gist of a letter and then another day to discern all the fine points, which I worked on as one might a translation or, it occurs to me, a revision of one's own poem, the first draft of which had been put aside long enough to begin to forget and then come back to with at least a little more perspective than had been available in that first mysterious moment of taking it down. My method was to type out the letter as best I could, leaving blank spaces for the words, or in some cases, phrases not yet translated, and then to read it over and see what occurred to me from context. One of the words I struggled with turned out to be iconostasis, the difficulty with which I think I can be forgiven. Often, when I'd studied a mystifying configuration of letters in relation to the known words on either side of it, my eyes would begin to water and, and sometimes cross. I'd have to put away both the letter and the typescript, and I found that when I came back to it a day or so later, after having turned my attention elsewhere, the recalcitrant word would reveal itself so clearly and obviously I'd marvel that it could have ever seemed so obscure. While I was so engaged with one of Merwin's letters, I also happened to be reading his most recent book, a collection of odes called Present Company, and more particularly a poem called To the Blank Spaces, in which the poet sees beyond the words of his own poem into the pattern of the gaps separating and encompassing them until he sees the spaces finally not simply as a random series of gaps, but rather as all words out of one language, quote, quoting Merwin, all words out of one language, and finally as, quote, tracks of the same creature. As a poet or any artist learns to trust and to give him or herself up to the process by which the work reveals itself, he begins to see that what may have seemed only a random series of images in the moment of creation bear a definite and incontrovertible, con incontrovertible relationship that once discovered can no longer be seen without. And it was at just such a moment that I began to take down, almost as though from dictation, my poem called To W.S. Merwin. I wrote it down in one sitting, and the next day coming back to it, I made one slight edit. So finally, it seems, I owe this poem to W.S. Merwin, and to his poem, to the blank spaces, and to the cryptic hand of his wonder-filled letters. Oh, that's, that's, that is, that's one, that's a great essay. That's, do you, um... 
Wonderful, but it, yes. Um, so, so Dan, do you often write essays? Is that a form you you work with? Because it says you have two books of nonfiction. Is that well? What actually, the, that 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 began with uh, uh, magazine work that I did uh, years ago. This I don't want to get off into this area, you know. Too much. Uh, too much, but. Uh, <laughs> um, uh, I, I was I, early in my life. I was a professional racing driver, and uh, Jim Harrison was doing a story on me for Sports Illustrated about the. Is race. that how you met then? No, no, no. Actually, we uh, we we met. Um, well, that's another story. <laughs> we, we, no, we, <laughs> we had, need hours here. <laughs> we, we had we had known each other, but uh, uh, he was writing for Sports Illustrated, and okay. he was going to do this story about the race driver who became a poet. Although it, it wasn't, I, I was writing. Before the before. racing as well, but uh, uh, and just about that time, uh, the editor at Sports Illustrated read the galleys of my first novel, and she called me and said, "I think this would be a better story if you did it." So I did, and then they asked me to do other stories in other magazines, and so I began uh, I began writing uh, stories for other magazines, and uh, and then you know began uh, writing essays on. Uh, you know, various subjects. It's not, certainly not a primary form for me. So was it, was the poems, that was your first love for writing? Is that yeah. true? Yeah. Uh, well, that started when I was about 12 years old, and I read uh, I read a poem called The Highwayman by Alfred Noyes, which was very romantic. Uh, oh, that rings a bell. Yeah. The, the moon was a ghostly galleon tossed upon cloudy seas. <laughs> The wind was a torrent of darkness among the gusty trees. The road was a ribbon of moonlight over the purple moor, and the highwayman came riding, riding, riding. The highwayman came riding up to the old end door, you know. And when I was 12 years old, that sort of made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. And then I read Walter de la Mare's The Listeners and Shelley's Ode to the West Wind and, uh, uh, of, of course, uh, Poe. Yes. And uh, at that time, uh, you know, I didn't think about wanting to be a poet or a writer, but I knew that uh, I had to do something with words to try to recreate the kind of feelings and mystery that uh, the poems that I had read created in me. And uh, so I began... uh, because they made I mean, you aware of the mystery more. That they was made in, me aware of the you. mystery, and they made me more deeply aware of the things around me. And so I, you know, I started it at that time, and uh, you know, wrote, wrote a lot of really awful uh, uh, things, like deep in the depths on the decks of the derelict, the dead were deranging themselves. You know, <laughs> that's a, a fine poem, use of you know. alliteration there. <laughs> yeah, and the confusing yeah. the. So it was, you know, I. So it was always poetry for me. And then when I wrote my first novel, I, I, I thought I was writing a poem, and it kind of went long. And when I got about uh, six or seven pages into it, I thought, well, maybe I am, uh, maybe I'm doing something else here. Uh, so. Wow, a novel snuck up on you then. Uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, <laughs> it uh, it began that way. Uh, so, you know. Poetry has always been and still is home base. That's like an anchor of sorts to go back yeah. to your. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> it, it, it's what I do. I'm, uh, I'm not. I, you know, I don't think of myself as a novelist, but as a poet who also happens to write novels right. once in a while. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, we'll we'll take a short break, and we'll be right back with Dan Gerber. 
Good afternoon. Uh, if you're just tuning in, uh, you're listening to The Living Writers Show and Dan Gerber, poet Dan Gerber and novelist and race car driver. And the <laughs> list goes on. If we had more time, we'd be, I'm sure, unveiling things. And, and just in that short break... Um, I, I said to Dan, well, it seems like you're familiar with Michigan. And Dan said, uh, I, I grew up here. You know, I lived in Michigan for the first 50 years of my life. So it, uh, it's, it's where I come from. In, in what part of Michigan? Dan? Uh, your... Up in uh, the, the, the western part of the state, about 20 miles east of Muskegon and about, you know, 50 miles north of Grand Rapids. And so is it something where like the land of Michigan is, is a part of who you are? Because it seems like the UP is very important to people as well. And Well, yeah, I, you know, uh, certainly the landscape here played a, a, you know, a big part in my work uh, and, you know, really underlies it all. And then uh, I think in, the, in, in my previous uh, book, Trying to Catch the Horses, uh, it's largely uh, written and from uh, when I was living in Idaho and now a primer in parallel lives, I've been living in California for the past eight years in the uh, what they call the central coast. It's uh, pretty vertical. They're uh, quite uh, oak savanna, they call it, uh, rolling hills dotted with uh, live oak trees leading up to the mountains. And why the move west? What was drawing you oh, westward? It's a long, it's a long story. Uh, I had been living in Key West for some time, uh, a place that I had loved for years and, uh, and uh, loved the people there and uh, the architecture and everything about living there. But it just got so busy with, uh, you know, so many cruise ships and Ooh, noise yeah. and distraction, I finally decided that it was a better place to visit than to live. And and through a, uh, a process of talking with friends, uh, one of whom, the novelist Tom McGuane, who had a, a, a place out there at that time, and said, well, it's it's great. He said, the only drawback to living here is that it's so good you're always afraid God's going to get you. you know, so, <laughs> yeah, things have to balance so out So we went somehow. out and... Uh, and uh, uh, visited for a week and really liked it. And a few months later, came back for another week and we found a place to rent and uh, moved there, uh, you know, a couple of months after that. Wow. So it was a pretty quick decision. You yeah, mean, like, it was. It's time to leave it Key was. West and it you was. found and, the place. And this place, uh, it, it, it grabbed me. Because there aren't really foxes in Key West either, right? Well, like no, but, continue. you know, that, that, wasn't, that wasn't in my consciousness at the time. Uh, and there aren't horses in Key West either, and that's uh, you know that's my wife's passion. And, oh, uh, so this seems that's it seemed nat like yeah, a natural. Yeah, the valley we live in is uh, a, you know a lot of horse farms and a lot of a lot of vineyards. And uh, oh, that sounds very nice. It is. <laughs> uh, I have to try to wrangle an invitation. No, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. Anytime. Um, no, no, uh, only teasing. It's interesting um, because Dan, I wanted to talk about because uh, it's definitely a spiritual com- component of your work, and 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 so the Eastern influences, and you've mentioned. Buddhism um, what do you see because because I wonder because sometimes I wonder about you've, you've written many books now and um, and now this this book with Copper Canyon um, your your poems have a quiet intensity and I wonder if there's if there's like a, an urgency within you about like uh, like producing poems or if it's um, or if there's the Eastern spirituality well, there's a, balances that. I think there, there's a 
a necessity. It's what I have to do. I mean, when I was teaching, you know, I'd have students show me their work and say, do you think I should be a writer or, or should I be a poet? And uh, I'd say, you're asking the wrong person. The question you have to ask yourself is, do I have to do this in order to feel fulfilled in my life? And if the answer is yes, you're stuck with it. And if the answer is no, then by all means, you know, do something else. Uh, but uh, it's it's the quality I look for in any work of art, whether it's a poem or a painting or a piece of music, is necessity something that something that comes through that this thing had to come into being. It wasn't just an exercise. And I think W. H. Auden said that a poet is only a poet in his own mind while he's working on the last revision of the last poem he has written. Uh, and this is true. When I'm not writing, I I don't I feel like I'm a fraud. Uh, other people may think of me as a, as a poet, but uh, I have no assurance that I'll ever be able to write another poem. And uh, so uh, it, it's more the feeling of, uh, you know, that of something coming through me than something that, uh, you know, that I, that I thought up. Uh, as, as my friend Harrison is fond of saying, uh, our job is to be there when the bread comes fresh from the oven. And so, and how are you there? That that's that's a lovely expression, by the way. Um, props to Jim Harrison. <laughs> um, but so is that? I think he may he may have stolen that. But, he might, uh, <laughs> but never credited the right, right. originator. But so well. So what is your method? Is it is it? So do you see the the writing of poems as a practice as well? Then so that you're very much. It's, so. it's a daily approach. Very much to so. The well, words. actually, my Zen master you know, told me at one point, he said, I think that is your practice. And the, uh, the Dharma name that he gave me when I was ordained as a monk was uh, that of a man named Dogen, who brought Zen from China to Japan in, uh, in uh, about the year 1200. And um, he said uh, that uh, we must see the world through words and letters and words and letters through the world. And uh, uh, so it's, it's just what I do, and I, 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 every morning I go and provide the space for that to happen, and sometimes I sit and look at a blank, you know, page, or do various uh, things that I think may, may stimulate something, and sometimes, you know, things happen, and the, the hours go by, you know, in about 30 seconds, and, uh, uh, you know, when, uh, when a poem comes along, Randall Jarrell said that a good poet is a man who in a lifetime of standing out in thunderstorms manages to get struck by lightning a half dozen times. He said <laughs> a dozen or two dozen, and he's great. You know, so it... Does, so, did, yeah, people have... It Did Gretel Ehrlich get struck? Well, someone, she did. She did actually she get did struck get struck by times? lightning. Gretel's a, a friend of mine, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I remember that time very well, but so... And she's fine. I don't she's mean to laugh she's about fine. it. No, she's she fine. Wrote a, uh, she wrote a wonderful book called A Match to the Heart about that experience. But um, so speaking metaphorically, again, my practice is to polish the lightning rod and find the thunderstorm and stand out. And in other words, you pay attention. You pay attention to your life. You pay attention to language. You pay attention to the world around you. Uh, and uh, so that uh, if something occurs, you're there to catch it. Uh, Rilke said, so we are grasped by what we cannot grasp. And uh, uh, so you get lucky. And, uh, 
you know. And it's a dedication. It's so a, it, 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 it mean, is a dedication. A, 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 it, it's it's not a it's not a haphazard thing. It's what you give your life to, and uh, and um, you know if uh, sometimes your devotion to it is rewarded by a poem. Is there well, is it's so strange to talk about devotion on one hand, and then also um, like the very real um, necessity of also making your way in the mm-hmm. world in in a in in a practical fashion right. or in a, a financial. Don't, fa- don't give up your day job. So yeah, ha- yeah. yeah. <laughs> with the poets, yeah. yeah. Um, I guess that's um, well. Let's see. Well, why don't we take a short break and. Um, and then we'll come back, Dan, and we'll maybe talk about the community of poets. Uh, um, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Living Writer Show. Uh, you're listening to WCBN FM Ann Arbor. My name is T Hetzel, and today in studio, Dan Gerber. Um, and and now we're we're trotting along towards our last quarter of the show. And so um, we will, Dan, please read us a, another poem. Okay. So we don't run out of time. <laughs> Um, well, where I live, uh, as we have been talking, the landscape is dotted with oak trees, uh, uh, about three varieties of uh, 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 live oak and several deciduous ones. That the primary tree is what they call a coastal live oak, which uh, Robert Louis Stevenson called murderer's oaks because when he first saw them, uh, it occurred to him that they looked like they looked like trees amongst which murderers might lurk. <laughs> but um, these trees. Uh, you know, have become very special to me. Um, and often they will fill with mistletoe. Now, mistletoe is a great thing to have over your head, you know, when you see somebody you want to kiss at Christmas time, but, uh, but they can strangle a tree. And sometimes the Spanish moss and just the tree's weight itself becomes too heavy for the tree to bear. And uh, so from time to time, uh, they need attention. And uh, the man who comes to, uh, you know, to work on them, his name is Umberto Tapia. And uh, it's always uh, a pleasure, something I anticipate whenever Umberto Tapia is coming to work on the trees, because while he's up in the trees, Umberto likes to talk about literature. He, like, he talks about his, famous, or his favorite uh, Spanish and Latin American poets whom he knows in one language and I know mostly in translation in another. And what really impressed me about him was that he'd read several of my books uh, when he came to work and he wanted to talk about them as well. And sometimes he would break into a, a, a Mexican aria up in the, uh, in the trees. 
Oh, that's a great spirit up in the trees there. So this is uh, in praise of Umberto Tapia. I cut my hands around the last bright speck and blow gently to keep it alive. An ember of oak log paired from a tree Umberto Tapia rescued with his artful pruning from stifling mistletoe and Spanish moss and the unleavened abundance that drags it down, a life like my own from which too little has been let go. Now I see this coal as a fallen star, one bright thing in a field of night, curious about the darkness and the world kneeling down to it, using its breath to keep it glowing. Thank you, Dan. Thank you. Wow. So, what did um, what did he think of that poem when he saw the book? Was he he I, he did, know, he didn't fall out of the tree, did he? <laughs> no, no, no. I, no, actually, I think Umberto. I think he was very pleased, but mm-hmm. uh, he he sort of took it in stride. He I don't even know that he has seen the book yet, uh, but he oh. has seen the poem uh, as it's, it was published, uh, you know, previously. Um, so he, he's he's well aware of it and has has <laughs> copies of it. And uh, um, you know, I I may be seeing Umberto in the next month or so, and I'll make sure that he has a book at that time. It's a book. Oh yes, yeah. that, that what what a tribute, yeah. really. And so it seems like you must draw um, good spirits towards you, Dan, in a way. Uh, well, uh, there seem to be uh, they seem there seem to be a lot of them out there, uh, and uh, or uh, around me. Uh, I just feel very fortunate in uh, in in the company uh, in which I find myself, whether human or uh, animal. Mm, mm. And well, that's it's interesting because from speaking with you just this short time, Dan, if you've um, you've mentioned um, friends that are in a community here, you know, living, and then and and mm-hmm. and people who you can quote. Um, from the past that obviously are, are so meaningful um, in 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 your in your life as well. So this community that you've built of the dead from before right. and the and the present and uh, those you've not known obviously, right. right? But so what about? I, I'm curious, like this community of poets. Like how long is that something that? How how did that come about? Well, Dan? I mean, there are so many, as you said, that aren't aren't living. I mean, there are, you know, uh, you know, poets without whom I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing, like uh, Whitman or Rilke, uh, who is a you know big. Uh, I first read Rilke um, forty years ago and uh, couldn't make anything of it, of him the first time, but something grabbed me. You know, as he said, you know, and so we are grasped by what we cannot grasp. I, I knew there was something here that I had to have, and I have probably read, I've read the core, uh, at least, of Rilke's work probably every year for the last 40 years, and every time it's brand new. And it's, you know, and it's just uh, uh, always nourishing. And, um, you know, I, I hardly ever travel without some something of Rilke's, you know, with me to read, uh, as I read in his biography that he never traveled without the work of a Danish writer named Jens Peter Jacobsen that, uh, you know, that he found, uh, 
who had preceded him by about a century. As a, uh, a fountain of sorts. Like yeah, of a yeah source or a touchstone. Of, a touchstone. And what book do you have of Rilke's on this trip? I have a book uh, called Rilke's Late Poems, which are the, uh, the sonnets to Orpheus, the Duino elegies, and uh, the poems that he uh, wrote after uh, uh, the Duino elegies and the sonnets to Orpheus. He, he uh, wrote those in 19... All in, all in a period of a couple of weeks in 19, well, he finished them and wrote the most of them in 1922, and he died in uh, 1926. And uh, these are the poems that he wrote in, in German after, uh, after the, the sonnets and the, uh, and the, and the elegies. Uh, and this particular volume that I'm carrying with me is uh, uh, translated by a Canadian uh, uh, named uh, Graham Good. And uh, I happened to stumble across it. It's not widely available in the States, uh, but it's a wonderful translation. And, you know, I've, I've read him in many, you know, translations from mm. Leishman to Mitchell and Robert Bly and, uh, well, so many. Uh, but this one's a strong, a strong. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, and I make up my own translations from all the others, you know, I mean, putting together. Do you work in translation, Dan? Not really. As well? I, I, I'm pretty monolingual. I have done some translations with, uh, co- you know, collaborating with uh, linguists or heavily using a uh, a crib, you know, a, a, a dictionary and mm. and trying to. Uh, Again, the spaces, right? The spaces. And, and the, that's so exactly. A, that's a theme with you. Exactly, and you know, sometimes I find when I'm writing a poem, you know, it'll go along, and I'll leave a blank space because I don't have that word. Mm. Uh, but you have a feeling there, of yeah, it. yeah. yeah. I mean, that you know, and I go back and fill that in. I know what has to go there isn't here right now, but I know what goes around it. What? Well, what is that? Which which makes me think of uh, what is what's your what are you working on right now, Dan? And and how are when you're working on something? Does it take a shape of a project in your mind, or are they coming to you as it individual? Takes, uh, lives? Oddly enough, a kind of geometric form. I mean, I can feel something coming. I I can't tell you what that form is. I couldn't draw a picture of it or describe it, but uh, you feel it there. And and there's a. It always starts with words. I've never been able to write a poem from an idea uh you know that because there's no surprise there and if there isn't for me i think robert frost said that if there's no surprise for the poet there's going to be any surprise for the reader uh it's an adventure it's it's a uh it's a kind of knowledge that can only come by way of literary composition it's not something i know i know that i know ahead of time and i want to write down and tell you I, it's the I, discovery itself. Exactly. The, okay. Exactly. And I've wh- lately I've been working on this uh, odes that I mentioned. Uh, and uh, would you like me to finish with it? How, how much time? Did, oh, we've got 10 minutes. Oh, we've got 10 so. minutes. So okay. Got, all right. Yeah. We've got gobs of time. I saw we were getting a signal there and I thought we were wrapping up. So, uh, <laughs> not, okay. not yet. I, yeah. I'll rustle some papers okay. around. And, all right. Um, yeah. Well, I would love to hear an ode. That would be wonderful. Well, okay. I, uh, let's see here. Or... Or if, if you have one in that. Where are you going next, Dan, as you're looking for an ode? Like, do you have another, are you going to read in another city? Or uh, well, I have, I'm at sort of the end of this. I'm reading at Shaman Drum tonight and in Grand Haven, at the Grand Haven Arts Center in Grand Haven, Michigan, tomorrow. And then uh, 
and then going home on Saturday. Well, is this an occasion where you'll see family as well? Uh, no, I past? did that at the beginning. I read in my hometown, uh, started out the tour at the library there, and then I went to Grand Rapids and Kalamazoo and uh, Interlaken and Traverse City and Petoskey and East Lansing and Detroit. And, so this and, has been a really crazy couple of weeks. Yeah, it has. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go to the ode then. Okay. A, cen a center of sorts. All right. Um, well, this is called, uh, this is an ode to a name I can't recall, which happens frequently to me, increasingly frequently. I will see people sometimes who, I could tell you their biography, I could tell you everything about them, but their name just won't come to me at the moment. And then, of course, uh, you think about it. When it does come, it's always kind of a disappointment because it's so obvious. You know, right. of, oh, well, of course, that's what it was. You know? right. uh, to a name I can't recall. And it begins with a little quote from Dante from uh, Vita Nova. Namina sunt consequentia rerum. Which means names are the consequence of things. To a name I can't recall. You lurk there at the edge of my eyebrow no more than an inch from the bank in which you reside. A shadow at the moment, no more than that. Your colors, your story, all the relatives arrayed around you in the Christmas photo to say, see, this is who we are at the end of another year, all the names you named and were named by. Dante said names are the consequence of things, and what, I wonder, may be the consequence of my not remembering you so inconsequentially inevitable when you do come back. Thank you, Dan. Is there, is there one, because you've got several there, is there another one that you'd like to read to us? Um, sure. Uh, it's great, because you've, you've got... Uh, this one uh, is called To the Angels. To the Angels, wonderful. And it comes from uh, Rilke, the angels of the Duino elegies. That uh, uh, Rilke says that... Uh, Angels are what we would be if we were freed from human distraction. And he, in the elegies, he also says that only the living make sharp distinctions between the living and the dead, that angels move through both realms and don't know the difference. Mm. And, uh, you know, so this, I owe a lot to Rilke in this, this ode, to the angels. Whoever you are, if you are as we think of you, watching and listening to the play of our lives, we sense most clearly when we are not quite our everyday selves, getting and spending, looking out ahead or behind. Rilke, my sort of angel, said you are what we would be, freed from all these lovely and not so lovely human distractions, that in fact you do not know us apart from those we once knew with our eyes and fingers and tongues whose voices still reach us at moments when our need in silence brings their half-forgotten words through the, through the timber of what was spoken or we wished had been or may even be now you've paused a moment between us. Thank you. Oh, that was wonderful. That's, uh, have you heard that, that Spanish um, saying where if there's a silence, like in a, if a, with a group of people and there's a moment of silence and no one steps in to fill it, and then how sometimes the silence becomes 
longer or greater, Dan, yes. then they say, then someone will start counting one and they're saying that they're counting angels. And then that usually starts, starts the conversation. The, the conversation. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How many angels are going right. by? That's, um, that's an interesting idea. And uh, what it reminds me, when I, when I was courting uh, my wife, uh, the woman who, who be, became my wife, and well, it's very sort of mysterious how we met, but we were talking <laughs> on the phone. We were far distances apart. And uh, um, and this was kind of when we knew something was happening because uh, uh, we were having a conversation and everything stopped. And it seemed this interminable silence. It seemed maybe 30 seconds long, but it seemed forever. Over the phone. That's over the a, phone. a long one. <laughs> over the phone. And uh, so finally I said goodnight. And uh, I didn't call her the next day. I felt a little confused. And so the second night I called her. And when she answered the phone, she said, you know, I, I had a heavy heart all day yesterday. I said, did you? I said, did it have to do with our conversation night before last or the lack of it? And she said, Yes, she said, I, I kind of felt that each of us wanted to say something and neither one of us were going to say it. And I said, you know, I felt that too. And uh, I think what I wanted to say is that I love you and would you please get on a plane tomorrow and come down here? And uh, <laughs> and she did. So. Uh, oh, that's one. And is that Debbie? That's Debbie. Is that De Debbie yeah. who you dedicated yeah. the book? Yeah, yeah. Book so uh, oh. it, it broke the silence, yeah. <laughs> so sometimes those silences are what exactly what we need, mm -hmm. right? And, I think and, so. And as poets, well, I think you in any, you know in a relationship, it's in, uh, you know it's important not to feel the need to fill in every moment to to be able to be com comfortably silent with, you know, with someone, right? And to you know, be and to be because that's when you're yeah. also aware of right more than yourself. Yes. Right? Yeah. Um, I have one other ode oh, I'd, I'd like oh, to read. Yes, please. That would um, be wonderful. This. Uh, uh, I was hiking, you know, up in the mountains with the, my dogs and one afternoon, and I came back, and I sat down, and I started to read, and I put my hand on the back of my neck, and I felt something, felt like a little scab or something there, and I, you know, I, I, I pulled it off and looked at it, and it, it waved tape? its little legs at me, and I searched, I discovered uh, I had about 11 ticks uh, oh. on me, and... Uh, <laughs> Did you write an ode to a tick? I did. I did. I did. One, one of them I had to have surgically removed. But, oh, uh, no, that's no laughing. Uh, okay. But uh, to a tick, I feel your devotion, though it doesn't feel quite like love. I've literally got you who dropped in uninvited under my skin, as the old song goes. You of whom I was even unaware till I became inflamed with your presence and you engorged with mine. What a perfect couple we are now living off the same blood. <laughs> well, that's something else. <laughs> I think that's a perfect way to end. I think that's wonderful, Dan. Thank, thanks. Will you, well, will you come back and talk again if you're in town? Happily. Or, that would be, I've really enjoyed it today. Thank you. <laughs> for being on the Living Writers Show. Thank you, T. And, um, and so we'll say once again, um, uh, Dan Gerber's uh, latest book of poems from uh, put out by Copper Canyon Press, a primer on parallel lives. Um, and look, look for that in bookshops. Shaman Drum definitely has it. Uh, maybe even some signed copies in the shop. Uh, and the cover will have a lovely painting it's of a, a fox. a painting by Winslow Homer. 
Oh, I got it. And the fox, your your totem animal, Dan Gerber's totem animal. (laughs) Um, Well, thank you for listening, Ann Arbor, and thank you for streaming uh, in Chicago and England, uh, in maybe Seattle, maybe Copper Canyon Press is listening. And uh, and thanks for listening to the Living Writers Show. Until oh, and thank you, Alex Sergey. He is he is an angel for engineering our show today. (laughs) Um, Until next time. Puts it around the boards, Hensick is there, puts it out in front, shot attempt by Turnbull, he scores! Travis Turnbull took a bouncing puck in front and knocks it in the net. Wolverines extend that lead, it's now 3-1. to one. Eight seconds left to go, he was up it into neutral ice. Five seconds left to go, Hensick gets the puck, sends it all the way in, over the goal, and time is going to expire. The Wolverines have won it. The number seven ranked Michigan Wolverines with the upset at home over the number four Boston College Eagles in an exciting game here at Yosite Arena. Hey, what's up, everybody? It's Mike Govier here on the Daily Sports Report. It's Wednesday. October something, 2007. It's the and, 10th. Oh, it's the 10th. Thank you, Amy. I'm here with Amy Amanovich, and she's going to be doing the Michigan Sports Report. Hopefully, uh, Michael Tobin will be checking in here with the National Sports Report. But let's kick it off with Amy. What do you got in the world of Michigan sports? Um, A couple random things, basically, from uh, several different sports. Uh, okay, so first we're going to start off with cross country. Mm. Uh, Jeannie Bewald is how I'm going to try to say her name uh, on the women's cross country team, obviously. It was named to the... Big Ten, or she was named the Big Ten Conference Runner of the Week yesterday. Uh, apparently, they had a competition on Friday, and she ran the 4,000 meter course in 14 minutes and 40 seconds, and that was her first collegiate victory. Oh, that's excellent. I yeah. mean, cross country is hard. I've never ran more than a mile in my entire life, so I have a lot of respect for those people. Uh, all right, and then in 